0: I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talked to Nazanin Sharokhni at the London School of Economics. She's the author of the book Women in Place: The Politics of Gender Segregation in Iran. And we talked to her both about her book and about the protests currently unfolding in Iran. Then We continue our discussions with authors of chapters in the book, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings. This week, we talked to Tariq Masood, uh, one of the authors of the chapter on Islam and Islamism. And then finally, we talked to Michael Robbins at the Arab Barometer, who tells us about the release of the new wave of data um, and some of the key interesting findings that uh, that were produced in this uh, particular wave of interviews and research. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Nazanin Sharokni of the London School of Economics. She's the author of the recent book, Women in Place, The Politics of Gender Segregation in Iran. And with the with the protests uh, swirling in Iran, which, uh, co- which touch quite heavily on issues related to the hijab and gender and public space, uh, I was delighted that she was willing to come speak with us about uh, what's happening. Uh, Nazanin, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: So your book is just full of rich complexity about uh, the nature of gender and public space and women's access to public space. And um, I was curious, you know, how you see uh, those long running debates and and, and political struggles manifesting in this current wave of protests. Right.
1: Right. Yeah, so um, exactly as you said, my book uh, traces the, this progressive yet non-linear shift from prohibition, um, the main reflex of the early Islamic Republic to provision as um, as modes of governance. And um, in the book, I focus on gender segregation policies in uh, Iran in the past four decades. And I explain how gender segregation was initially during the 1980s um, enforced through prohibition. So by telling women, where they could not be or go um, and what they could not do. Um, But then we see a shift in the mode of governance exemplified in the mushrooming of women-only spaces, um, such as women-only universities, women-only parks, women-only transportation. Um, So basically governing through what I call provision, um, channeling women's movements into women-only spaces, highlighting where, or telling them where, they can indeed go or they should go or how they should uh, in in places where they they can actually be um, uh, present. So um, so the way I talk about it in the book is some sort of accommodating the change in the gender order, which was caused by the shift in social political uh, social and political um, um, uh, in the social political Mm -hmm. context. Um, uh, Elsewhere, I've called this kind of shift and this responsiveness patriarchal accommodation. Patriarchal because they continue to reinforce gender segregation and mandatory veiling. um, And they continue to enshrine formal kind of gender difference associated with male dominance. Accommodations because they, they, and by they, I mean the state officials, the Iranian state, adapted existing standards of um, uh, appropriate masculinity and femininity um, to shifts in the social political um, uh, context. So, But what this meant um, was that gender segregation, the regulation of of movements of bodies in space, um, continued, although in a different form. In response to these shifts, and in order to adapt to and navigate these regulations, the bodies of the older generations of women, and I like to focus here on bodies in space, because this Mm -hmm. is very important in the current wave of protests, So the bodies of older generations of women, and that I'm talking about myself, um, (laughs) the previous generation, um, uh, the bodies purposefully stretched, bent, and changed form to carve a space within the city and or to hold on to what little space was given or afforded to us or given to us by, um, by the state or as a concession but bodily reactions were not all purposeful, right? Women's bodies also got depleted or even to use some of the government um, and official reports, um, uh, uh, women's bodies uh, uh, got exhausted and sick. So we, we see all these government reports, um, particularly at the end of 1990s and early 2000 coming out about um, how Iranian women actually saying explicitly in these reports that because of mandatory veiling and because of gender segregation practices, which somehow uh, constrains women's movements, how Iranian women are increasingly suffering from depression, from joint diseases, from arthritis. And so um, uh, so, it's, it's these sick and depleted bodies where and are in fact the product of um, earlier decisions and spatial policies of the Iranian state. But, um, and this is what's, what's interesting or what we see now, there is a limit to how much a body can stretch um, to accommodate um, regulations and control. Once it reaches that limit, it revolts um, and screams, just like uh, I like to compare this to a nervous breakdown when the nerves get oversaturated or overstimulated, uh, um, overwhelmed, there's a nervous breakdown. So for many, I believe this is what we see in the streets of Tehran, uh, Iran now is, um, like a nervous breakdown, bodies screaming. And what I see these days is that a younger generation has also joined this older generation, but this younger generation, as opposed to uh, us, uh, the older generation has grown to be bolder, more vocal and demanding. And um, uh, they have a sense of entitlement. This younger generation has gone through different uh, uh, different formative experiences. A growing number of this younger generation Um, uh, with their professional, educational, and actually increasingly recreational aspirations, see these regulations. So what for us was kind of sort of an opening, this younger generation sees these regulations, even if they appear in the form of provision or an expansion of women-only spaces, for example, as an ultimately alienating imposition that restricts their life chances and ambitions. They're not happy with stealthy, conditional, fleeting freedoms that are Uh, sometimes granted to them. At the same time, they have experienced more connections to the global community through social media, internet, and also through Iran's greater international integration, however impaired and problematic that may be. Um, And this connectivity constantly reminds them of possibilities that are out there and that they're deprived of of the lives that others live. So it has prompted the new generation uh, to demand for more and better, and, uh, but at a time when the state has less. Um, and for, this is for various reasons, because of the rampant corruption, because of the punitive sanctions, and the squabbles and rifts between internal fraction, uh, factions um, in the ruling elite and the list continues. So in a way, the, uh, the reason I gave this um, mm-hmm. background is in, in, in some way, the current move, move, moment and movement starts where my book ends, because we are talking about a new generation. Um, and on a different note, if I may, just very mm-hmm. quickly, um, just connecting it also back to what you highlighted about space, um, I would like to highlight another point. So um, women-only spaces has o- often been looked down on. And considered to be apolitical, um, but in women in place, in my book, I show how women have uh, uh, women in Iran have repurposed these spaces and mobilize them for political and economic gains throughout time. So I don't know if there's time to give an example, but so, for example, I show how members of the One Million Signature Campaign, um, that was a campaign during the early 2000s, they were collecting signatures um, uh, to to submit a a petition to the Iranian parliament to change gender discriminatory laws. And as this campaign grew, Um, Of course, there was clampdown, they were under the radar, and many of their activists were getting arrested. But what I found very interesting was that how every time they had a um, a meeting or a gathering in the basement of their houses, uh, for example, um, there would be a raid and some of them would be arrested. But they creatively started using these women-only parks, for example, as a place where they could connect to and talk uh, with uh, women who were there, because these women-only parks, also from the perspective of the state, they were kind of apolitical spaces. So they were not regulated and monitored as heavily as other spaces. Um, so I'm talking here, I'm trying to refer to the, poten- to the radical potentiality yeah. of some of these women-only spaces that are actually uh, ironically expanded, uh, produced and expanded by the state itself. Um, we hear, um, I hear actually from, um, the people that I'm in contact with, friends and families, um, in Iran, how these spaces are, are still kind of generative of conversation. So how women, for example, in hair salons, um, there is now, now during these protests, like, um, uh, as a woman is leaving the hair salon, there is this encouragement, you know, don't put the veil back on, just keep it down. So there is this, um, and, um, or like at the back of the buses where they're sitting because, um, transportation in Iran, uh, buses in Iran are segregated, as they're sitting there, how they exchange stories about how they feel about the protests or what they've done. And um, they share strategies, ideas, and, um, and all of that. And the reason I'm highlighting this is that um, one of my favorite uh, his, uh, historians of American women's movements, is Estelle Friedman, and she talks about how during the first wave of American women's movements, um, there was this kind of how uh, women's movements activists mobilized these not just mobilized they created actually women's book clubs, uh, women's associations, um, and how these spaces were um, conducive to a new form of mobilization to the creation of new counter publics, and because there is this kind of feminist undertone, or at least there are there is a very vocal kind of feminist. Uh, uh, group out there that's um i think this is important to see the potentiality of producing kind of these counter publics through creating women-only spaces or mobilizing the ones um that already exist
0: that's absolutely fascinating and uh i'm glad you shared that anecdote or that story because it really does shed some light um Another way of looking at this, like shifting, turning the lens around, is that your book really makes the case uh, that gender and the regulation of gender is a critical lens for understanding the state itself. And I wonder if you could think a little bit about that in terms of what we're learning about the state through this, you know, this challenge over its gender policies.
1: Right. Um, Yeah, thank you for that question. I actually think the state should and could only be understood when we look at the everyday sites of um, Mm -hmm. where um, the governance is being practiced. So gender practices, um, as you as you mentioned, reveal how the state governs. Um, uh, uh, Why is that? Because um, sex and gender both are part and parcel of state power and also state governance the ways states produce um, subjects and the ways in which these subjects are regulated are gendered through and through. So now in Iran upholding the Islamic identity of the state and inculcating that identity into society required from the very beginning prescribing and scrutinizing women governing their bodies and regulating their movements. From its points of inception, the Islamic Republic linked its Islamic credentials to mandatory veiling and gender segregation. And by doing so, it produced a set of ideological and practical contours that shaped, but also, as I will talk uh, in a second, but also limited the state itself. Why do I say this? I want to highlight the messiness of governance, the inconsistencies or paradoxes created as the state attempts to govern, to navigate around these two policies, so mandatory veiling and gender segregation. The process of implementing these policies has not been driven by a clear methodology. It has not been smooth, has encountered setbacks, and has relied heavily actually on trial and error. Um, In its attempt to justify these policies, redefine these policies, reconfigure hijab and veiling and um, gender segregated spaces, the state creates a messy terrain It um, in fact undermines its own fundamentals and effectively um, renders governance a mockery, a farce and opens up the possibility as it has of doubt, criticism, and now we see revolt. So let me give you again a few concrete Mm -hmm. examples. Buses in Iran are gender segregated. Um, uh, In some buses, women sit at the back, uh, men sit in front, in bus rapid transits, it's the opposite, women sit in front, men sit at the back, fine. But then you have the collective taxis, which are not segregated. And in fact, uh, you may, as a woman, uh, I might find myself sitting in between two men at the back of this taxi. But the story doesn't end here. The metro, um, the metro compartment, the the women only metro compartments are optional. So you may or may not use them depending on what you want. So we see in terms of transportation, there is already inconsistency um, in terms of gender segregation across three different means of transportation. Now, um, let me also just give you a few examples about the veil. Uh, um, Back in the uh, 1980s and even uh, up to the early 1990s, black, navy, brown, and gray were the officially accepted colors for women's attire. Um, I remember I once was caught because my socks were white. So that's how how, uh, heavily it was actually monitored and um, uh, punished. But then later in the 1990s and early 2000s, fearing society's depressive mood, um, the state actually made it mandatory for elementary school kids to wear cheerful colors. So pink, yellow, blue, and white were added to the palettes. And this is where um, those who have grown up in Iran remember that we suddenly saw the emergence or the appearance of all these um, TV anchors, female TV anchors in uh, colorful um, hijabs and mantles and that. Um, uh, they haven't been consistent uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in the punishments that they prescribe for uh, improper veiling either. So during uh, in the early um, decade in 1980s, for example, there was uh, the punishment, uh, uh, there was lashing. You would hear stories and you would have people around you that were um, lashed because um, they had improper veiling. Then they changed that, there was detention, and a bail statement that you had to sign up and release that you will um, uh, you promise not to uh, be poorly hijabed or bad hijab after this, so you will uh, abide by the rules of um, uh, mandatory veiling. Then they changed it again. There was an arrest on the street, and then you had to attend these mandatory or compulsory training sessions uh, about modesty, which is actually um, speaking of uh, recent protests. Which is where um, they took Masa Amini, who's become mm-hmm. now the symbol of um, uh, these uh, protests. And in recent months, actually, there were discussions about reducing bad hijab, your improper veiling, from a crime to a felony. Um, so so when I talk about mockery, um, uh, uh, that is what I mean that in all sense of the word, definition, implementation, policy design, all of that, you see all sorts of inconsistencies and trial and error. And of course, all of this, you're, you're, you're Uh, this trial and error is unfolding on women's bodies. So at at the level of dailiness, it becomes frustrating, sometimes not to know what's the form of punishment today or um, how far uh, far should my hijab go back for me to get a fine or to get arrested or not. Um, So that's why I'm saying it is important to look at um, everyday sites of governance where these gendered practices unfold and how these measures, where these measures are implemented, negotiated, resisted, subverted, um, because it's only by looking at um, the edges of state governance that you can get a clear understanding of of the core.
0: No, again, that's really, really interesting. And especially this focus on the lived experience of the state, I think that resonates with a lot of literature um, uh, within political science as well. Let's, let's switch to a different angle then uh, yet again um and that's one of the things which really comes out in your book about um you know the the changes over time in um these in in state regulation of these practices is that it's not just um, a story about you know kind of liberal urban feminists, but there's you know there's a, these challenges go across social classes, uh, they go across uh, you know parts of the city and everything, and, and and so in a sense, looking at this from the from the perspective of social class mm-hmm. and and location, uh, not 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 like we were talking about before, but you know kind of location within the city. How does that shape how we might think about all of this?
1: Right, right. Well, thanks for this shift in perspective. Yeah, I mean, indeed, um, sometimes the word women um, can mystify or distract us from the complex um, geometries of power that guide their being and implicate them in in the state differently. Um, And although, as you said, um, the control of women's bodies is a universal experience, but women's bodies are not only gendered, but are also classed, um, the case of Iran, ethnicized, um, so to speak, localized, structured by center periphery differentials. And, and, and the list is extensive, of course. And this gives rise to different needs with different urgency and um, intensity, different constraints, um, perils, and also potentialities. Um, related to this is that, and this is the point that I want to highlight, is that disengaging from the state or opposing it just like engaging with it is a privilege. And so it's it's not something that everyone can uh, um, readily do or afford. Um, Because uh, there is actually a huge population of women whose livelihood depends on the state. So we need to take Mm -hmm. this into account, um, particularly as feminists, that um, uh, just as for years we criticized that those women who have access to the state or are working from within the state Um, These are a particular privileged group, a close circle of reformist politicians, just as that is a privilege, um, uh, 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 disengaging uh, uh, from the state and opposing it uh, is also a privilege, I have to say. Um, For some, it might be the last resort. So it's not a privilege. It's like there is no either or chance. The state is too repressive and we are left with no, uh, we don't have a way inside of it. We don't have a way outside of it. So we just oppose it. But for some, I, I, I would like to insist that it is still a privilege that not everybody can afford. And this later will help us understand why there are still some people who haven't participated in these protests. Um, so we need to take that into account. And um, so despite these differentials, um, one does not need to look hard to see that women, the people protesting are quite diverse. One can see perhaps for the first time, middle and working class women and men. Um, a youthful movement where older women are also visible. uh, uh, I think we've also seen some clips of older women also joining the protest. And and the protest geography suggests that the center periphery divide is less pronounced in this wave of um, protest as they have um, spread widely. In this diversity, one can discern a clear um, vocal feminist presence, both in the streets and in cyberspace, represented by activists who have been working on the ground, some connected to uh, broader transnational networks and circles. Um, For them, um, there is a clear call for gender equality, for women's bodily autonomy and integrity as a crucial precondition for a free society. But, and I wanna highlight this here, but not all women protesting have clearly formulated feminist demands. Many also belong to a generation that has not experienced an active and vocal feminist movement, And that's because in the past two decades, what we've seen is that women's issues and activism have been uh, highly securitized and there have been um, clamped down in the rest of uh, women's, um, uh, women's movements activists. So some of these younger uh, uh, protesters, I hope they are feminists in the making, Um, Others have less focused or clear concerns. They are performing, in my opinion, their rage, not with a clearly articulated demand uh, or outcome at this point. And although not all protesters have the words to articulate this, their participation is a cry for recognition, for dignity, for more space in the city and in general, in um, various institutions in the society. And as indicated, the slogans and, uh, and protest rituals that, uh, that reach us through media or intimated to us, um, intimated uh, to us by um, people we are in contact with. Having said that, I feel compelled uh, to add uh, some caveats here. Uh, our access to what is happening on the ground is highly mediated, and should I use the word curated? Mm-hmm. Um, apart from seeing the protest through a diet of short video clips, We need to acknowledge, and by we, I mean you and I and Mm -hmm. um, all of us who are actually not in Iran and not on the ground and not part of the protests uh, that are unfolding on the streets. So we need to acknowledge that we have very little access to what is happening. We lack the ethnographic data, um, so to speak, the actual voices in their polyphony um, to get a better understanding of the events. We need to ask whose protest is getting heard and seen who is not in the street but still partakes to this call um, for change as well as who is not protesting. I think there are these different uh, groups. We should definitely not fall in the trap of homogenizing the protesters or imposing our own definitions with the uh, trickle of information we have. And I have to say here um, that the trickle of information of course is because also of the internet lockdown and um, blackout in Iran that makes it difficult to access really what's happening.
0: Well, following, you know, kind of directly from that, um, you know, on the one hand, you have people, a lot of people in in the protest movement who are making absolutist demands, um, you know, for complete change. Um, And yet your book shows that on issue after issue, uh, you saw these kind of negotiations and renegotiations. And so there's also uh, currently going on some discussion of perhaps the state might, or the regime might change some of its policies, meet some of the demands, renegotiate some boundaries. Um, What do you think about that? Is that the sort of thing that you might expect to see based on the history of the regime's regulation of gender?
1: Right. Well, this is a very interesting question and my short answer to it is no. Um, I'm not hopeful that uh, we will see any um, significant changes uh, on the side of the regime. Um, So uh, because you mentioned my work, so my work has focused on so-called normal times, if one can call them uh, Mm -hmm. that. Uh, These compromises, as you call them, were effectively concessions that were made, uh, that were carefully not framed as responses to protests, or other forms of pressure that would cast the Islamic Republic as weak. Um, Indeed, I could go as far as to say that the Islamic Republic has never made concessions through or in response to protests. Hmm. Um, If one wants to map this process of change um, through concessions, one will see that women have have had to go to great lengths to lay claims that did not threaten the Islamic Republic order, its existence, and to adopt discourses circumscribed by the state itself. So in my book, I show that women initially laid claims um, on spaces or demanded um, further rights uh, as sisters of the revolution, kind of mobilizing the Islamic discourse. Um, They did so as moral subjects, demanding the dignity they were promised in the Islamic order or um, during the Iran-Iraq war and after it. Uh, war widows, for example, uh, for example, who sacrificed for the revolution, they demanded that sacrifice to be recognized. So they kind of mobilized around um, uh, this category of war widow. Um, eventually, and with the shift from addressing, when the state officials shifted from kind of addressing women uh, as moral subjects to, um, to calling them citizens or seeing them as customers with um, clients with tangible needs and demands, uh, women could mobilize around other categories. So as mobile citizens, for example, on the buses, and that's what I uh, document in the, in, in, the, in the bus chapter, how women um, uh, uh, basically uh, used that little space at the back of the bus during the 1980s to lay claim on uh, the bus space, to lay claim on the city, to demand better and uh, safer mobility, and eventually expanded that space from one third of the back of the bus to half of the bus. or or women managed to kind of um, enter negotiations with the state as clients of privatized services, as citizens and clients in need of health related and welfare services, or in in recent cases, um, because it's also gained publicity outside Iran as spectators of national celebrations, so um, uh, such as sports events. So women's movements uh, or women in general were forced to compromise reduce womanhood to fragments in order to gain the state's concessions, and then work hard to mobilize and re-territorial, re-territorialize their gains, transforming them from a handicap to a resource. But what is important is that this, this, this lengthy process um, really they had to, and I have to go back to what I said before, they really went to great lengths to lay claims that did not threaten the Islamic Republic order. And this is not what we see this time. Um, uh, what is happening now? What we have seen, we have evidence, of course, um, many journalists have been arrested. So we have evidence of an increasingly securitized response to the ongoing protest that suggests that once more, the state is poised not to show any sign of weakness um, but the message of the protests are very clear and hard to avoid taking note of. These are the first protests where the compulsory veiling, one of the pillars of the Islamic State, um, was not only denounced, but uh, women uncovered and burned their headscarves, um, I have to say, ritualistically, and um, uh, for the first time openly defying the state. And uh, they are the first, uh, these are the first protests where demands for immediate material needs, such as bread, were eclipsed by calls for an end to an oppressive state. Um, I think that behind um, any show of strength that the Islamic Republic may put up, a lot of thinking will be focusing on how to respond to its crisis of legitimacy that has now reached um, a critical point.
0: It does seem like it's reached a critical point um, along all those metrics. I I guess one last question then is, you know, building on what you've just said, um, you know, many people have pointed out that that in the run up to the protests, um, the, there was kind of a much more rigid enforcement of hijab and uh, kind of the, the morality police going you know, much harder in terms of enforcing it under the Raisi administration. Um, and now, as you've said, they're challenged and they don't like to show weakness. And, you know, looking at other cases like Bahrain or Egypt or, you know, some of these other um, Arab uh, uprising type cases, it would be easy to predict that they will now become even more repressive and more rigid in order to really try and prevent any challenge like this from ever happening again. Is that where you think this is going or is this um more likely to be once the once the storm passes they quietly renegotiate and find ways to you know make those concessions but not from a position of weakness i'm trying to understand if there's just right. really no hope
1: um no i'm always i think one of the problems is that i'm always very optimistic especially <laughs> when you see the 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 um the energy that's now in the streets and the courage with which, despite the fact that the, um, the environment, the, despite the heavy uh, clampdown and securitization of spaces and all that, what I hear from friends and relatives in Iran is that in, in some neighborhoods, every five meters or something, there is a security and uh, there's a um, riot police um, standing. So they're heavily controlling public spaces right now. But despite this, We still see videos coming out of uh, women in a a little opening that they find out they kind of um, show this opposition. Um, uh, Of course, now the regime is also kind of arresting, um, I think, a lot of these channels through which these videos are, uh, or blocking a lot of these channels through which these videos are reaching us. Um, So, no, but in general, I think one, first seeing the the level of energy and seeing that some something broke this time that was not part of the previous um, round. we did not see them in the previous protests um, so I think in a sense there is no going back I do think that in a very short time um, they will um, you will see an increasingly um, securitized state and space um, um, and uh, another thing is I think the the intense pressure uh, or the rigidity with which Raisi's government kind of uh, implemented and then followed up on hijab policies was also because of the very shaky, fragile, um, uh, because of the negotiations around sanctions that were happening and the kind of the fragility of these negotiations, but also um, the international reputation of Raisi himself. But unfortunately, um, what we see with the, what we've seen with the Islamic Republic is that whenever it's uh, under pressure from the international community, especially when it has failed in delivering a lot of the promises that the revolution kind of actually was based on, or the the new state was based on, the promise of a thriving economy, of raising the poor, the downtrodden, um, so um, that that promise was not delivered, and um, the economy is um, the economic situation is deteriorating. So in a failing economy, in pressure from the international community, in a kind of intense negotiations around sanctions, to me, what appeared to be happening was that the women were the last front that this regime could kind of hold on to, mm-hmm. to say that there is like to hold on to, because as I said, from the very beginning, mandatory veiling and gender segregation were the two pillars of their Islamic identity. And these were kind of the last uh, fronts that were left and that they could cling on to. So this is how I would explain what was happening before and why we saw this kind of reinforcement suddenly. Of, uh, uh, because the the morality police was becoming. It was always present. It never left the scene. Right. Um, we grew up in Iran learning how to avoid it or deal with them or all of that. But we did see its presence becoming a little bit. Um, fading, fading away, but then there was a comeback after Raisi and I I do think that at some point they need to kind of um, uh, settle negotiations or sit Mm -hmm. around uh, the elites, state elite, and to figure out this problem. The Parliament, the Conservative Parliament a few uh, years ago, they published a report um, uh, that was solicited the state and um, in that report it was obvious that uh, more than Almost half of the population were against mandatory veiling. So I think it's been a long time that they've realized, or for a long time, they've realized that um, they need to kind of grapple with this uh, problem of hijab, mandatory hijab, mandatory veiling. Right. Um, but I think the reason this project has been delayed is because of all the rifts and factions within the state itself and the changes in administration. We've seen a lot of kind of, and I leave that to other experts to come and talk about this, but we see a lot of rifts within the state uh, uh, elite itself, but also within, between different state organizations. Uh, Because I don't want us to forget that maybe it was 18 years ago, I can't now remember. It's Mahmoud Ahmadinejad now seems to be uh, from decades ago. But one of his campaign mottos was that uh, we don't care about uh, you know, veiling um, uh, practices. We need to give more space to our youth and all of that. And I think that was the beginning of a project the state was realizing or state elite were realizing that they need to kind of somehow resolve this issue of mandatory veiling. And I think it also started as we also see now by bringing some bad hijabis to um, uh, pro-state demonstrations to show that not everyone who is a bad hijabi or is improperly veiled is against Islamic Republic. In my opinion, I think that was the beginning of, they they were trying to come up with a project where they decouple veiling from the Islamic identity of the state or the, the, the strength of the state. And just as everything else in the state, it just took them several decades, and they, <laughs> they still haven't kind of materialized that project. And now it's reached a boiling point, or a critical point.
0: Well, it's really interesting. Uh, Nazneen, thank you so much for joining us. It's a fascinating book, fascinating discussion of what's happening right now, um, and appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for the provocative questions.
0: <laughs> this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Ledge. Each week this fall, uh, we're talking to some of the authors of chapters in the collection The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, which was a POMAPS production involving more than, uh, nearly 50 scholars, um, edited by myself, Julian Schwedler, and Sean Yom. On this week's episode, uh, we'll be speaking with, the, uh, with one of the authors of the chapter on Islam and Islamism which was co-authored by Khalil Al-Anani, Courtney Freer, Quinn Meekum, and Tarek Masood, who joins us today. Tarek, thank you so much for your work on the book and for joining us today.
2: Mark, thank you so much for editing the book and for inviting me to talk about the chapter.
0: So uh, we're asking each of, the, uh, each of the participants in the podcast to start off by summarizing what they think some of the big takeaways of this survey of the literature and this deep dive into an enormous amount of scholarly production since 2011. What do you think we've learned? What has changed in the study, in the political science study of Islam and Islamism?
2: Uh, gr- great question, Mark. Well, I, I think the the very big takeaway I would uh, emerge from, from this exercise with Is that, you know, um, the study of Islam and Islamism, which is really a subset of the study of religion and politics, is an area where uh, the scholars of the Middle East are really at the bleeding edge of the discipline. You know, if you think back to what was the conventional wisdom about the relationship between religion and politics in the world, it was that we were in the grip of something called the secularization thesis that as societies became more modern and industrialized, religion wouldn't matter so much. These. Uh, Uh, this particular form of identity would fade away in significance. And what we're recognizing in the current era is that really isn't the case. I mean, remember in the waning years of the Trump administration, when President Trump stood in, uh, I think it was Lafayette Park with a a copy of the Bible and people were really puzzling over what that that meant. So we are now in the um, broader world, really thinking very carefully about what is the impact of religion, religious symbols, et cetera, on political life. And this is an area where if you look at the literature on the Middle East before 2011 and after 2011, uh, we've really uh, done a lot of the the best and most careful work. And so I think this is one one big thing not to lose sight of, uh, the fact that really Uh, scholars of the Middle East have been on to this important thing for for quite some time.
0: And scholars out there in the comparative politics field are actually taking notice.
2: Oh, absolutely. If you look at some of the work now on, say, you know, Religious identitarian parties, particularly in the developing world, a lot of it cites very and engages very productively with work that scholars of the Middle East uh, have done on on their own religious parties in the in the in the Arab world, particularly parties emerging from the Muslim Brotherhood. So you know, if you just think back to when you know you and I were in graduate school, and there was all this hand wringing in our field about. You know how the study of the Middle East is somehow marginal from the broader study of comparative politics. I feel like religion and politics is one area where that is uh, not only no longer true, but where scholars of the Middle East are really in the vanguard of of generating theoretical developments.
0: Now, there's been uh, a number of methodological developments in how we have collectively, as a field approached uh, the study of Islam and Islamist movements, whether as a normal political part, political movement, or as something unique, something which is only to be understood on its own terms. Where do you think we've gone on that question over the last, uh, over the last decade?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, absolutely. I think it is the case that Um, Again, if you think about the secularization thesis and this idea that religious attachments would fade in the background, especially as drives of political behavior, one of the um, puzzling facts of life for most people who are wedded to the secularization thesis was that in the societies of the Middle East, when people were given Uh, the right to choose their leaders or their representatives in free and fair elections, they would march to the polls and vote for these quote-unquote religious parties, these Islamist parties whose uh, dominant projects, at least if you listen to their rhetoric, seems to be to legislate Islamic law. And this fact Served as a little bit of ballast for the broader idea that uh, Arabs and Muslims are what the, the uh, late Syrian scholar Salazm called Homo Islamicus, you know, people uniquely driven uh, by religion. And I think what a lot of scholars of the Middle East uh, tried to do is take that um, hypothesis seriously and subject it to some rigorous testing. So, um, you have a lot of work on Islamist political parties done by people like Stephen Brooke or Khalil Al Anani or Quinn Meekum or myself or Courtney Freer that really tried to look at these organizations as, uh, or Muna Al Ghubashi, as primarily political parties, political organizations. And how far can we get in understanding their behavior by putting aside some of these mystical, uh, ideas of people voting on the basis of what they believe uh, the Quran tells them, and rather, uh, you know, uh, how far can we get by just a, a, a understanding po- people's political behavior as similar to the behavior of uh, of citizens in uh, around the developing world? And I think that literature really um, uncovered a lot about Islamist political parties that was basically normal, okay? So- when Islamist political parties were winning votes and seats, they were doing so not just because. They're, you know, holding aloft the Quran or saying Islam Islam is a solution, but also because they're doing the kind of hard work of party building. They're, you know, if you look at Khalil Anani's work, he's talked about how uh, Islamist political parties were really good at recruiting and mobilizing committed members. If you look at Stephen Brooks' work, it was uh, a lot about how Islamist political parties were really good at generating social uh service uh uh, uh operations that could generate. Not just clientelistic attachments, but um uh positive reputations for um you know a uh, competence and uh honesty and probity. Nathan Brown, Melanie Kamet, and Pauline Jones long, a-, a lot of these people have contributed to that literature. And what that really did was it took these Islamist political parties out of the realm of, Unusual organizations at odds with the modern world, and put them squarely in the same bucket as political parties around the developing world, like the PT in Brazil or the Peronists in, in Argentina. So, I do think that was a one major um, uh, uh, move of 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 uh, of the literature. I think another one was then hearing internally into these organizations moving just beyond like this broad question of like, why are these organizations, these parties winning and um, examining the question of, of moderation. And so again, if you think about some of the work by great uh, pioneers in this field, like Gillian Schwedler or Kerry uh, Wickham, one of the central questions was, look, these political parties start their lives as pretty conservative organizations. And in some cases, they're not even fully on board with Democratic projects. I mean they're willing to participate in elections but their commitment to democracy seems to be thin or or contingent and and yet with time some of these organizations evolve to become some of democracy's most steadfast defenders and so and and when it comes to things like women's rights or the rights of minorities they move from very hidebound positions that characterize them at, at the beginning to fairly not very, but fairly open and tolerant positions. And so the question was, how does that um, how does that take place? Is it a function of electoral participation? Is it a function of traffic that these parties start to have with organizations outside of um, the their their immediate environs be it electoral competitor, or be it, you know, human rights activists from the West, et cetera. There's a, a great paper by Sharon Grewal that was published in the American Political Science Review that looked at uh, the behavior of Islamists in Tunisia and actually explained uh, uh, variation in Islamist behavior with reference to where these Islamist politicians uh, spent their exile during the authoritarian period. So if you were jailed or you spent your exile in somewhere else in the Middle East, then when it came to, to vote on things like social policy or you know women's rights, et cetera, you tended to be pretty conservative. But if you were an Islamist who spent your exile in France, well, then some of the norms and values of democratic fellow travelers in that society rubbed off on you. Um, and and so you conducted yourself in a more, um, quote unquote, liberal fashion. So that's really um, interesting work, not just about the transformation of or moderation of Islamist parties, but about the broader question of party change. And again, this is something that I think will really influence the broader comparative uh, politics discipline. And then I guess the last thing about Islamists, is uh, the last question or the last line of inquiry, and this really is post 2011, is how they govern. I mean, you you remember, I mean, we would spend a lot of time prior to 2011, you know, uh, uh, imagining alternative universes in which Islamists win and trying to figure out like, what would they do? Would they actually legislate the Sharia? Would they do all of these things that everybody thinks they would do? And we actually now have governing experiences in uh, Tunisia, in Morocco, with with a bit of an asterisk in Egypt for a year, although maybe that also requires a massive asterisk. And, you know, I think what we observed is, again, consistent with some of the finding on in the literature on Islamist parties being, quote unquote, normal political parties, albeit conservative ones. um, They didn't do the nightmarish stuff that um, a lot of people thought they would do. And. You know, ultimately, they um, governed and were judged on the basis of their ability to provide the kinds of uh, material goods, mainly that uh, citizens in that part of the world have long been lacking. Sort of, you know, shoring up the welfare state, providing uh, other government services, um, et cetera. So, I think that was also, um, you know, um, uh, you know, and I think the work on Islamists and how Islamists govern. Is still fresh, and so I think this is an area where we're going to see a lot more contributions. But you know, you have the work of Shadi Hamid, Khalil Anani, and others, and I think that's um, that's going to be a, a, a growth industry. Um,
0: yeah. So one of the things which is really interesting in in all of these literatures that you're describing is this, you know, theoretical tension between ideas and interests, so to speak, or, you know, kind of behave parties that behave strategically versus movements that have this broader set of ideological and religious commitments. How do you assess what the literature has done with that tension between the political party and the broader movement?
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. You know, I mean, you know, when I think back to when I started graduate school, you know, I started the week of 9-11. And so this was a time in which this notion of uh, Muslim politics as being governed by the pernicious uh, impact of, quote unquote, Islamic ideas that was at its that was at the zenith. Right. And so I think a lot of people of our generation spent a lot of time banging their heads against that notion. And so a lot of the literature can really be seen as trying to kick against that idea. And so we talked about that in the case of Islamist parties. But, you know, another big bucket of the literature is the relationship between Islam and democracy. You know, the Muslim world, particularly the Arab core of it, I should probably not refer to the Arab world as the core of the Muslim world. I apologize to my non-Arab Muslim friends, but certainly the Arab world, uh, the the Muslim Arabic speaking world is uh, completely bereft of democracy, and I think it's the world's only region that has not a single uh, liberal democracy. And so lots of people explain this with reference to uh, the dominant religion of that uh, part of the world. And I think a lot of us spent a lot of time trying to kick against that notion. You can look at the whole literature, for example, on rentierism, on electoral authoritarianism in the Arab world. like It all pits itself against the notion that this uh, grim political reality exists because of uh, of islam and i think um now however you know you know after a lot of this very good work has been done that shows for example that if you if you survey muslim citizens they are among the most fervent supporters of democracy around the world you can compare muslims to any other uh group and they are um Uh, They are they do not uh, uh, look uh, terribly different from other uh, religious traditions. Um, um, You know, you could look at Islamist political parties, which, again, if you think about that line by Edward Jurigian, you know, Islamist part. He didn't say he was he was talking about Islamist parties, but he didn't say it. But the idea that Islamist parties bring one person, one vote, one time, if we look around the Arab world, the brief democratic experiments that we had in that part of the world. Not a single one of them was abrogated by Islamists. They were abrogated by the opponents of Islamists who were concerned that Islamists were doing too well electorally. And so I do think a lot of that, um uh, uh, a, a lot of that uh, quote unquote, essentialism, um has really, um been uh, should should have been put to rest. However, I would say, it's possible for the pendulum to have swung too far. In other words, we spent so much time trying to say, look, nothing that you're observing is about religion, that we neglected the ways in which some of what we are observing is about religion. And I think the next phase of scholarship is gonna have a a, a salutary move in the other direction, which with with care and sensitivity will begin to really explore the ways that religious norms and values and practices do have an impact on politics. And some of those impacts, by the way, are gonna be very positive impacts. So anyway, so I do think it's mm-hmm. that that's where I, I see some of the, the literature going.
0: I think one last question that is to build on your previous comment is the other arena where we see a similar tension is in the study of Islam and political violence and terrorism certainly after 9 11 but then with the islamic state and with uh, al-qaeda and the like certainly there's been a tremendous amount of literature about that relationship uh, much of which is covered in other chapters of the book but still obviously a concern to this one
2: yeah yeah absolutely a very very large strand of the literature and you know again here you know, there's so much uh, in the policy circles and in the public discourse that really tries to implicate Islam and Islamic concept of, of jihad in uh, the uh, maybe disproportionate amount of of some violence and terrorism that we observe in that part of the world, that I think there's still a lot more corrective work needing to be done. So if you think about some of the really great uh, uh, scholars like uh, Thomas Hegham or, or Rich Nielsen, I think they've done a very good job, at, actually, of showing how these uh, violent movements and and some of the generators of this violent ideology are ultimately not enacting something that's encoded in the religion's DNA, but rather responding to incentives. You know, Rich has that great book that really tries to explain these radical clerics as sort of thwarted academics who, you know, not achieving their career ambitions within state religious hierarchies, uh, figure that their best career uh, move is to offer this steady diet of red uh, jihadists to potential supporters. And so I do think there's still a lot more uh, growth needing to be done in that literature. But that that is one area where I would say, You know, I'm not sure that the pendulum ever needs to swing back to um, to um, endogenizing the outcome to religion. And I think now we're experiencing a moment of um, political violence across the advanced industrialized world. Some of that political violence is motivated by identity, be it religious or racial identity. And that is really causing us to uh, understand a little bit more about the the universal drivers of that kind of behavior.
0: I must say that uh, theories of the unique susceptibility of Muslims to conspiracy theories and appeals to violence seem quite quaint in the era of QAnon and uh, in January 6th. No, that that's that's you know, that's
2: absolutely right. You know, it's interesting because I had this project myself on conspiracy theories, and it was right after the uh, collapse of the Democratic experiment in Egypt, and I was very depressed about the prospects for democracy in that part of the world. And I, too, was uh, falling victim to this notion that, well, maybe there is something in our thought pattern that causes us to um, uh, uh, be more susceptible to conspiracy theories. But then luckily, or maybe unluckily, history reminded us that this is a universal uh, universal problem um, and not one that Muslims are even remotely uniquely susceptible to.
0: Well great thank you for speaking to Tariq Masood one of the authors of chapter 7 Islam and Islamism in our book The Political Science of the Middle East This is the Middle East Political Science podcast Last week on Friday, uh, the Air Barometer released its seventh wave. This is a major event in, uh, in Middle East political science, given that the Air Barometer is one of the leading uh, sources of reliable public opinion survey research. Uh, we're joined today by Michael Robbins, director of the Air Barometer, uh, who's going to tell us a little bit about this wave. Michael, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Mark.
0: So this was, uh, I assume, a difficult wave to carry out with COVID and everything. Tell us a little bit about it, where you surveyed and how you did it.
3: So yes, you're absolutely correct. I and mean, this is uh, the, the first wave we've done fully since uh, the COVID pandemic has really hit. So we, we did this face-to-face in people's place of residence. We did it with health measures in place to prevent um, the spread of COVID, but it was certainly challenging. So we began the wave in October of last year. carried it out through July of this year. So we had a number of potential challenges with Omicron and other uh, variants that were spreading throughout the Middle East in different periods where we had to hold off on field work, but we were able to complete it in 12 countries in total. So we did more than 26,000 interviews across the region. In most of the countries we have about 2,400 respondents, in some of the countries it's a bit um, less, um, but in the majority it is uh, 2,400 which gives us a lot of uh, ability to describe different minority groups, different uh, regions of the country, um, so it was something that was a, a huge undertaking um, and, and really the largest survey we've been able to do and it has been done, to my knowledge, it's public uh, since the COVID pandemic, so certainly this gives us a sense of what Arab publics think um, after the COVID pandemic, how the COVID pandemic may have changed things and certainly also after some other major world changes, so we're really excited that this is uh, now in the public domain.
0: Were there any countries that you were, you were able to survey this time that you hadn't before?
3: We did. For the first time, we have Mauritania, which was a, a bit of a, an interesting case. We, uh, we, we weren't necessarily experts. We had, fortunately, funding from uh, the National Endowment for Democracy and uh, really worked with the team to increase, uh, you know, to, to do a very uh, high-quality survey there and, and work with the team to build their capacity. So Mauritania is the new one this wave. Um, so we were, we were very pleased to have that for the first time.
0: And one of the things which is interesting and important about the air barometer is that the data that you've released is all available uh, to researchers. Could you just tell people how do they get access to the, the raw data if they want to work with it?
3: So certainly I think it is one of the really important pieces of our project is that we do make the data publicly available. It is there for you to think about, to comment, to talk to us about. We want to make sure that we have the highest quality data. It's possible, and then we've done the best job. So it is something that really is um, different, I think, than many other projects that, that make the findings public but don't make the data. So if you want to access the data, um, you go to our website. There's a survey tab on the, the top of the website, and you can go down to the, the different surveys. So all the past six waves are also available for download, and the seventh wave is. We ask and request that you fill out a uh, form just giving us a sense of who you are. That's really not to track you or anything else, but it is to give us a sense of who's using the, the data and, uh, and hopefully, you know, help us with, with funding applications in the future. So we'd ask that you fill out the form. And once you fill out the form, the, the data can be downloaded um, for your, your personal use. We do ask, um, you know, that if, if you are using the data, please do let us know if it is in a paper or other things. We like to highlight that on our website, I'll highlight the work that you're doing and things like that. So certainly if you are using making use of data, um, do reach out to us, and, and we're always uh, interested to see the work that you're doing.
0: One thing I know you've done in the past is uh, to work with the scholars who want to add questions or want to try and use the barometer platform uh, for things they're interested in. Is that still a possibility?
3: Absolutely. So we love to hear from people who are doing working on new issues. In the past, we've had researchers reach out to us um, saying, I'm working on X or Y. I think this is an important issue, something we may not have considered, or perhaps a new lens on some of the things we have considered. So every wave we try to have certain questions that we ask um, from the past. So we, we do track, we try and track changes and think about how the Middle East and North Africa are changing over time. Um, so a lot of the question there is, is included with these long-term trend items, which helps us track this change. But we do to refresh it. Every wave we ask new questions, we're always looking to improve our measurements, improve our topical coverage, and so if you do have new ideas, or issues, um, please ask them. I will say we can't always guarantee that they will be included, but it is something that that is really for us a public resource. It is something that I think for graduate students or for, for professors uh, covers a huge range of, of countries. We probably can't do an entire battery that, that goes deeply into an issue that you may care about, but we can potentially help you generalize something that you may have done in one country, to a broader range of countries. And so we always are looking for ideas and, and making this a public resource. Um, we're generally pretty friendly, so um, please, you know, don't be scared to to reach out if you do have ideas or suggestions, and and we're happy to hear those and think about those and see if we can incorporate that into the next wave.
0: Yeah, and it's really impressive how many uh, journal articles I've seen over the last few years that have relied on the air Barometer data. So it really is a public good that uh, that you guys have been producing. Well, let's talk about this survey um, and uh, some of the major findings. Uh, what what did you learn uh, from the seventh wave?
3: So the one of the fortunate things about our barometers, we have a huge range of topics on it. We cover everything from economics, political issues, political engagement, views of government, um, issues of, of religion, uh, religious behavior, international relations, um, media. So it is a huge, huge range of topics. But I, I, we did find a few things that really stood out to me that, that I could walk through. And so the first is, is really that um, we were surprised by, particularly in middle-income countries, how many people said that they were going hungry. Um, in the half the countries we surveyed, at least um, half of the, the the citizens in the country say that within the last year, they've missed a meal. Um, so something that, again, we know that economies have been struggling in the region, but it is something that I don't think we've really seen and, and taken a, a look at. And, and again, one of the things that really surprised us here was that most of these surveys were done before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm sure we've all seen the stories about how this has really affected the Middle East, particularly Tunisia, Lebanon and Egypt get so much of their food from Ukraine or Russia. Uh, and the challenges that this has, uh, has potentially led to of food shortages increasing and, and so on. And so given the fact that there was this major problem before this invasion, certainly this has increased. And I think it is something that that um, is likely to be a, a major problem going forward. And so we have a new report by our uh, Research, Salman al-Shami, on this. And uh, I'd encourage you to look at that and read it and think more about some of these, and certainly helping uh, to think about your own work on uh, on economic issues and, and some of the challenges people might be facing in the region.
0: It's been a consistent feature of the um, we, findings over the years that uh, economic concerns and poverty and things like unemployment, those have always been among the top priorities of citizens. So this makes it even more intense.
3: It, it really does, and it is something that we are seeing typically in many countries, the the There had always been, you know, the economy is not necessarily doing well, but there's hope for the future. And I have seen, and perhaps due to COVID, a number of countries we've seen a decline in economic optimism, that people are starting to in some ways lose hope or give up hope that this may improve. So it is certainly a challenge and something that I think was perhaps the most alarming finding that we we had in this wave. And and we can't unfortunately track this. This is the first time we've asked this uh, set of questions in a face-to-face way. So it is something that we will continue to track going forward, but it is, is really something that I think should shock a lot of the policy community and really think about how we, um, you know, how the challenges in the police, that it really is quite acute, more so than just the economy struggling, but people really are suffering from uh, a shortage of food in, in many of the countries.
0: Great. Well, okay, so that was one really big headline finding. Uh, what else did you see? So...
3: Uh, another um, interesting thing that we found is for many years, we had not necessarily seen a significant change in views of women. That women, both in p- the public and private sphere, that the levels of equality had kind of remained constant. So, in a case like Tunisia, we'd seen that since 2013, that had not been a shift in views of the degree to which women are uh, equal to uh, men in terms of political leadership or the degree of which they are. What we saw this way was actually a significant shift. We saw about a 16 point change in the sense that women are at least as good as men at. Um, political leadership, of course it could be better, but that there was a sense of a changing gender role. And this also was within the household too. And we asked, should men have the final say over decisions within the family? Um, we've seen a significant decline in, in, uh, in particularly Tunisia and Lebanon, but a number of other countries. And this is something that largely held constant. It's not true in every country um, in the region. Uh, there are couples such as Morocco and Algeria where this doesn't hold. In the vast majority, the, the things that have at least shifted more positively towards gender equality of course, at the same time, what we see is in the majority of countries, people still do hold views that men are, should be the head of household and should also be um, are better at, at in the political sphere than our women. So there are some good news here for really the first time in, in a number of waves. But um, it is something that certainly women's equality has a long way to go in the Middle East, at least in terms of uh, the public view. And, and clearly um, one of the things we do see here is that women are much more likely to think that women should have equality than are men. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done within um, within kind of men and uh, how they view women, but but there are signs of hope in this wave, which uh, was something that was really encouraging for us. Well, um, and so,
0: one of the things well, that you've been tracking for for years and years is uh, the question of attitudes towards democracy, and uh, <clears throat> has anything changed?
3: We have. I mean, we saw something very surprising this wave, and it's something that we're grappling with and struggling with. Is that we've we for a number of years asked questions about democracy and we find is that people still support democracy, overwhelming majorities in most of the countries we survey support it, and majorities in, in all countries say that democracy still remains the best system regardless of its problems. But we did see a, a significant increase in the perception that there are problems with democracy, that it's not necessarily something that will fix the economy, that it's not something that will lead to um, you know, stability, that there are challenges of stability with it, and it's really indecisive. And so when we first saw this, the first country we did was Tunisia. So we thought perhaps some of these challenges were reflective of the Tunisian case, that the Tunisians had uh, lost some faith that democracy could solve its issues over the past 10 years, given its history. um, It's understandable that concern in this that democracy is not a perfect system would increase dramatically. But we saw it really shoot up in the last, uh, since the last survey in 2018 to 19 um, in Tunisia. But what surprised us was this continued across the full wave. In every country that we surveyed, all 12 or all countries were able to ask this question. We, we get this in, the, in a couple such as Egypt um, uh, and, uh, and Kuwait. But elsewhere, we did see a significant increase in concerns about democracy. Um, in Lebanon, perhaps, maybe that's understandable as well. But in others, and it, it didn't necessarily seem to make as much sense to us of why the change now. Certainly after 2008, um, you, you could think that with the challenges the West faced uh, and, and the Great Recession, others, concerns about democracy and the economy might increase. But this was a broad trend across the region. In many cases, in a case like Jordan, going up 30 points in, uh, after it had essentially not changed over about a, a 10 to 15-year period, radically. And so there is a, a dramatic shift on democracy. And we're thinking about, is this a demonstration effect from from the situations in Tunisia and in in Lebanon, perhaps in Algeria, Sudan, some of the other places, Iraq, that have experienced some of these changes mostly? Or is this a broader sense that um, the West, with responses to COVID and other things, didn't necessarily um, do as well as as other countries? We're we're not sure. And so I think it is something that we'd love feedback from uh, others in the field who were thinking about these issues, about what might lead to this shift, but it was something we saw consistently across all the countries.
0: You know, that seems like uh, consistent with some of the findings that were reported in the Afrobarometer wave recently also. So maybe it's more of a global issue. It, it
3: certainly could be. I mean, I think there is a global concern. Um, the the There's been a lot of discussion of the global recession of democracy um, and, and certainly could be a broader trend there. And I think if we'd seen this go up slightly, we would have been a little less surprised with the magnitude in, in a number of countries. Um, you know, particularly those that aren't necessarily themselves democratic, um, is, is surprising. And, and I mean, I think what, what, what is interesting is just why are people, uh, updating this? And again, it could be some of the media, um, that, the people are watching. It could be, um, as you say, this kind of global trend, but it is something that you're right. We are seeing in a number of other countries and in Latin America, they're seeing some of the same findings in, the, the America's barometer. So it does seem like a global trend, not the least, as, as you say, but, um, certainly the, the, we are in our new survey.
0: That's really interesting. Um, so did you ask any uh, any new questions, uh, kind of new batteries this time around?
3: We did. One of the batteries we're very excited about was a, a new battery in climate. So climate, obviously, is very important for the Middle East. There's been a lot of work coming out of this. And certainly with COP27 coming up in Egypt, there has been a greater attention on on climate in the Middle East. And one of the things we found um, this way was that, that uh, perhaps... We thought that there might be some variation with oil producers and non-oil producers included in the survey, but we found generally across the board, people said that the government should be doing more on climate change, that they are worried about climate change and a broader issue. However, when we ask a broad range of questions about what are the most important issues facing them, people don't necessarily point to the environment. It's actually very rare. So certainly when when prompted, people say the environment is a major concern, and that particularly relates to water resources. And nearly all the countries we surveyed, water, um, and thinking about the Middle East, that makes sense is water shortages, the pollution of the water supply and, um, and things like that were really the dominant concern. Generally, at least half saying that was their, their greatest concern, others saying air quality, uh, trash and so on. But that was really what it's centered on. Um, but what we also found is when we asked people if um, they recycled, why did they do so? And um, many people did recycle or reuse uh, say glass bottles um, for, for, you know, for different purposes, putting water in the fridge or storage. We asked, why did you do this? It was typically in, in, in all countries, the majority said it was for either convenience or for cost savings. It wasn't to protect the environment. So there is a sense that um, as people are looking to raise environmental awareness, there does need to be a campaign that behaviorally people are not necessarily thinking about the environment or their role in it to the extent in their daily lives. And so again, um, there is a lot of work to be done. We are looking to uh, Revise this battery and think more about it. It's something that we, we started with a different set of questions in the fifth wave, but certainly with the, the challenges facing the region, we want to focus much more on the environment in our next wave, and, and would be love to hear our suggestions on this. But it is interesting that I, I think there is a broad concern about the environment. It's something that people think about when it is mentioned, but they aren't necessarily uh, translating that into their daily lives and their choices. Um, with uh, an environmental lens on those. Um, so certainly uh, something that, that advocates for environmental change in the region may want to think about in terms of campaigns to raise awareness in that regard.
0: You also mentioned uh, in the opening that uh, you asked questions about international relations type issues. Did any of those um, uh, produce any surprising findings? We
3: did. I, I think the most interesting finding was- really tracking the, the role of China in the region. um it's increased its role in the region, and and we first saw them in 2016. When I mean, so you can think about the fact that uh, that before that it wasn't something that had really risen to the that range, but certainly they've moved in with the Belt and Road Initiative and other uh, initiatives. Certainly, economic engagement. What we find is that the the perception that China is um, that the favorability of China has actually declined in a number of countries. In some countries desire for closer economic relations with China has fallen by 20 points in just three or four years. The number of other countries has fallen by 10 points. And so if you compare that to the United States, in a couple of countries that we survey, the United States has fallen by 10 points, but in all other countries, it's held steady or actually increased the desire for closer economic ties in the last three to four years. So certainly we are seeing a shift in the relative um, support for China. Again, China remains more popular than the U.S. overall, but there is a shift away from China. And you can think about why that might be Certainly the example of Pakistan, the example of Sri Lanka, um, the the way that China's engaged um, in the Middle East, you know, there may be concerns about kind of the the debt trap it may represent. And we are seeing a pretty dramatic shift here. So as China gets to be better known, our sense is that perhaps it is not necessarily as as well viewed. And and we ask a number of other questions about this, about your views of Chinese companies. What we generally find is if a Chinese company would come in and do an infrastructure project, the perception is it would be of low quality, it would be relatively cheap. Um, and they wouldn't necessarily treat the local population well, and that generally people are not in favor of having a Chinese company come in and do that relative to either an American, a German, or potentially another European, such as a French or Italian company come in. But generally there's a stronger support for, for um, you know, there's a lesser support for China than there are for these other countries. So in a sense, we do think that there is a shift happening on China and one that um, perhaps it came in as a new player, a new um, non-colonial power, Coming in that that had had some success economically itself, but that this is perhaps fading, and that China's moment is uh, perhaps shifting. Uh, that its moment, its star is essentially fading in the region, and, and that's one of the big trends that we will continue to track in the the coming waves. Well, it's really
0: really interesting, um, Michael Robbins. Uh, thank you for joining us to talk about this. Uh, it sounds like there's a there's tremendous amount of interesting data and findings that uh, that scholars can begin to work with. Um, and we look forward to seeing some of the research that comes out of that.
3: Well, thank you so much, Mark. It was great to be here.